Welcome to the Paragold Podcast. This is Jared Pitney, and today I am joined by J.D. Stevenson. J.D., thanks so much for coming on. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. I feel like, <laughs> let's see, we've been, this podcast has been going for a couple years now, and your name keeps coming up. People keep asking, uh, when are we going to have J.D. on? So I don't I'm, know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> I think it's a good yeah, thing. Well, I guess we'll find out. It's a really good thing, and, and way to start strong. I mean, I think we the first picture Robert took, he was like, that's a good one. Yeah, well, so congratulations. of course. <laughs> nice, looking, nice looking man. So you retired as a chief of police uh, police in 2009. would love to talk about uh, your time as chief of police, but uh, catch me up on your story. How did you eventually become chief? Where, where did you start out at? I started out in 1982 as a patrol officer. I was hired in January of 1982, working 11 to 7 on patrol uh, and spent two and a half years doing that. And then uh, one day while I was home sleeping because I'd been up all night working, I got a phone call from then Chief of Police, W.W. Lindley, and he said, I need to come out to see you. And I said, okay. Had no idea why he would need to come to my home to talk to me. And I thought, this must be bad. <laughs> he didn't ask me to come to his office. He was coming to, to, my, to my home and... Uh, very nervous and uh anyway he came knocked on the door and i let him in and he said well i guess you are wondering why i'm here and i said yes i am he said uh we have an opening in cid and i want to know if you'll be you'd be interesting in taking that job i said no sir i'm not interested and he said uh i would really like for you to take this job and I said, I don't know anything about investigations. I'm just now getting my feet real good on the ground in patrol. I like patrol. And he said, well, just to be honest with you, I've already asked everybody else. <laughs> <clears throat> and I thought, well, what an <laughs> ego builder that is. So um, he said, as a, a favor, would you please take it? And uh, I said, I really don't really care about it. And he said, I'll make a deal with you. You do it for two weeks. If you don't like it, I'll put you back on patrol. I said, okay, deal. And uh, he knew very well in two weeks you don't have a clue what you're doing <laughs> in CID. So I went in. Uh, I liked the folks that worked in CID at that time. And he never came back and asked if I wanted to go back to patrol. But anyway, I, I kind of found a home in CID and doing police work and uh, did that for a total of 18 years. Uh, I'd been on patrol for two and a half years. So uh, anyway, wound up uh, eventually becoming the supervisor in the criminal division and in 2001, uh, Mayor Gaskell mm -hmm. appointed me as the chief of police. So I become the chief and stayed in that position until 2009, and I retired uh, at that time. So I've uh, seen a lot of things in, in police work, some good, some bad, um, I can tell you uh, a little short, funny story when I was on patrol. About 2 o'clock one morning, I was on patrol, and it was me and another officer, and I was driving, and we were at uh, 3rd and 412. And this guy comes running out in the middle of the highway. Of course, we're the only vehicle on the, on the highway. And he's waving his arms and stop, stop. And I thought, my God, what is this? And so I rolled down my window and I said, what's the problem? And he said, well, I'm drunk, ain't I? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know. Are you? And he said, you damn right I am. And I said, 
okay, what do you want to do? He said, take me to jail. I said, well, hop in. <laughs> so he jumps in the back seat of the car, and I take off, and I'm going to the Greene County Jail. And he said, oh, I was just kidding. I really just want to ride home. <laughs> and I said, oh, no. <laughs> That's not the way it works. He said, you're not really taking me to jail. And I said, you're drunk, ain't you? And he said, well, I've been drinking. I said, you're going to jail. And, uh, of course, once he got in the car, you could pretty well smell the odor of uh, alcohol on him. And I thought, how stupid can you be? <laughs> and then we got to the jail, and we had to fight him to get him inside the oh, jail. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God. I, I <laughs> This guy's nuts. But anyway, Did you he know, go to jail. Did you get him in there? Yeah, finally got him in there and uh, charged him with public intoxication, disorderly conduct, and resisting. And uh, <laughs> I don't think that he ever run out and uh, flagged down any more police cars wanting to confess to being drunk. No that I'm aware. No of. wonder you didn't want to leave the patrol. <laughs> <laughs> this is where all the fun. good stuff is uh, happening, man. Uh, but. Uh, I had a lot of fun on patrol. I had a uh, had a an alarm at Walmart, the old Walmart, uh, up oh, in yeah. front of Perigo High School. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had an alarm. Uh, we'd just come on shift, so it was around eleven fifteen, maybe, when we got this alarm, and we would get occasional alarms that were just false alarms. Sure. So. Uh, we get up there. I'm uh, sitting on the back door of Walmart, and we've got other officers around the front, so I'm sitting there watching the back, do back door in my patrol unit. And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden the door comes open, and it closes. Uh oh. And I thought, what is going on? And... uh all of a sudden, it just flies open. This guy runs out, has a backpack on. So I get on the radio and tell him, uh, that everybody else that this guy's come out the back door and he's running. Well, there's a big hill uh, yeah. right there. So I jump out of the patrol car, and I'm chasing him on foot. And he goes down, and at the bottom of that hill, there's a ditch. And he falls into that ditch, and I thought, I've got you now. And I fell in the ditch. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not believing it. Anyway, he gets up, takes off running again. And I chase him uh, through some backyards, and he runs back up and gets back up to Court Street. And I'm right behind him. And he goes around this house uh, at Face Court Street. And I go around the house, and he has vanished. And uh, my lieutenant at that time was Dan Langston, ah. uh, was sheriff here. Uh -huh. And I, Dan gets there. He's got his patrol card. And, of course, I'm really winded. Oh, that's a long and, run. Yeah, it's, uh, Yeah. And I couldn't even begin to do that now. But I said, he was right here. I was right behind him. And Dan said, well, he's here somewhere. So we start looking, and he had run around that house up into a garage and had crawled underneath a car oh, that no. was parked in the garage. And uh, anyway, Dan, we get him out. And Just dragged him out? Yeah, we, we well, Dan dragged him out, and uh, we were leading him back up to the patrol car. And... Uh, he, he uh, I mean, he's fighting us, and so he kicks me. Oh, no. As, about as hard as he could kick me. And so I backhanded him yeah. in, in the midsection, just came right, and he kind of doubled up. And uh, he he's doubled up, and I said, oh, God, I think I hurt him. And Langston, he said, he's not hurt. <laughs> So anyway, we get him straightened up and get him to the police car and take him to jail for burglary and theft. And one of the things that we found, uh, one of the things he had in his backpack was a uh, forty-four caliber handgun 
that he had stolen from Walmart. Uh, and uh, that had come out of his backpack during this chase. And I thought, oh, my God. You know, he had a forty-four handgun, and I got a little nervous about that. Uh, oh, God. But anyway. Uh, That's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, it's just wonderful. And that was just in a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, but about a lot of the time on 11 to 7, you were pretty bored. I yeah, mean, probably not even a lot of speeding tickets at that time. There's not hardly any traffic out in those hours, especially during the winter. Uh, I, I was, uh, we used to double up some, and it was a very cold night, I think in January, and we had ice and snow on the ground, and we was out on 412 East, and uh, he, uh, you might know Jimmy Danley, uh, his daddy was James Danley, used to be the sheriff here in okay. Greene County. And and Jimmy went on to be a state trooper over in Walnut Ridge. Um, anyway, he was he was driving or maybe he, he was driving. He said, "Can you drive? You know, I'm getting kind of tired of driving. This is probably two thirty, three o'clock in the morning. We're out on four twelve east. Not a car inside. Ice and snow all over the the roads. I said, "Sure, I'll drive." So he puts he just stops in the highway. You know, there's nothing around. So I get out and uh he just takes off and leaves me standing in the middle of the highway and I thought, You gotta be kidding. And he goes, I don't know, probably three or four hundred feet, uh football field or so, and I see the brake lights come on. <laughs> and he turns around, comes back, and he he really thinks that's funny. <laughs> anyway, I had a a few choice words for him. <laughs> and uh, that was just kind of, I mean, uh, I guess it was, we were breaking the monotony of. Uh, oh, you didn't have cell phones. No, no cell phones. Uh, just I you did. in the car, man. Yeah. CB. I'd be playing on the CB oh, yeah. nonstop. We didn't even have a CB to play on. Oh, what? that's right, in the 80s. Uh, oh. How did uh, you communicate? We had Motorola police radios that we use but not cbs okay uh, i had a uh my first uh, cid vehicle was a 1974 nova oh yeah <laughs> kind of engine that bad boy <laughs> and uh anyway we had uh, really bad radios and <clears throat> to show you anyway it was I went to do a search warrant by myself out in Center Hill looking for dope. Jeez. And I think that's probably one of the most stupid things I've, I did. No backup, nobody with me. And I just go out there and I'm going to serve a search warrant. They're going to be happy to see you, of course. Uh, yeah, of course they <laughs> Come are. Come on in. Yeah. <laughs> Glad We've you're been, here. We've been looking yeah. for you. Want something to eat or drink? <laughs> but, uh, Went in, uh, went out there. The people weren't at, wasn't at home, thank God. So I go in, I do the search warrant. Don't find anything. And I'm trying to talk on the police radio back to the station, which is about where it is now. It was in the old city hall building. And the radio was so bad, I had to drive up onto the highway before I could talk to the police department because they couldn't hear me from center hill Jeez. and i thought you know if i'd got out here and had something yeah. really bad happen even if i could have got to the radio nobody could have heard me <laughs> thank god those days are over <laughs> but uh you know that's some of the things i did on patrol there was probably a lot more that i've forgotten about yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And so you move into detective, and that was after just a couple years in patrol. Yes. Okay. And what what was that work primarily like? Like I know you have some interesting cases, and I want to get into that. But but the day to day being a detective for the CID looks like what? It was a nonstop grind. Uh, it, when you work cases in CID, they never go away. Uh, if you're investigating those because on patrol you come in you do your shift and you go home and it's over 
in CID, you come in and you get, you know, five or six, ten case files that is that are assigned to you. And those are your cases to work, run down leads, talk to witnesses, talk to suspects. And it you can do that. <clears throat> and when you come in the next day, it's still there. Mm-hmm. So uh, eventually I had probably 50 or 60 open cases Jeez. that uh, that I was. And it's up to you to try to solve them. Right. Do they? Do you go to school a lot? Do they teach you like here's questions you ask or here's what you're looking for? Or is it just something you got to figure out? Well, there's a lot of on the job training. Uh, you learn from other investigators, and I, I had some uh, really good folks that I was working with. And uh, of course, I went to some schools while I was in CID: interrogation schools, drug investigation schools, child abuse. Uh, all of that, I, I don't know how many hours, but I had a lot of training in just certain types of investigations. So walk me through this, and let's let's use the Dr. Jones uh, murder as as the, the case study, because I know that you worked that one. So for those who aren't familiar, go listen to uh, Judge Phil Hours. I'm not sure what episode that is, but Judge Phil Hours came on last year, 2022, mm-hmm. talked about this in, 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 at length, yeah. um, and and. Correct me if I'm I'm wrong, JD. But basically, just to catch up, those of you who are listening for the first time, uh, Doctor Jones and his wife were found murdered, um, and essentially, what happened, if I understand correctly, if I remember correctly, is Doctor Jones had hired a hitman um, to take out his wife. A man shows up at his door. He's pretty sure it's the hitman that he had hired. So he lets the guy in. The guy kills him, goes on to kill the wife and take some jewelry. Mm-hmm. Uh, years later, some of that jewelry comes to, I guess it was Mr. Higgins or a jeweler here in town. Crap. He calls the police and says, hey, I know this was her jewelry because I gave it to I'm the one who made it for her. Y'all then set up a sting where you basically take down the guys who had kind of come in to bring the jewelry you talk with them, come to find out they had like traded some arrowheads or something crazy for the jewelry to a guy in Eureka Springs. You then get to Eureka Springs and you find the guy who actually killed Dr. Jones and his wife. And he was not a hitman. He just so happened to be at the right place at the right time. Um, and so it's a, it's a crazy story that needs to be turned into a book. And I just cut I out a lot of details. Like you just need to go, but, but, we can talk about the case in just a moment, but you get phoned. Um, I guess someone calls you and says, Dr. Jones and his wife has been murdered. That's what happened, yeah. right? Well, uh, basically. And so uh, you show uh, up and like, what does that look like? Like uh, from, from start me step one, like because you don't know anything else at that point. We get a phone call from, I believe the housekeeper who had showed up to clean the house. And of course she walks in and she sees, uh, Dr. Jones in the floor. It's obvious that he's deceased. I've been shot. Shot. He was shot. And I I believe it just scared her to death. She, I don't know if she called from there or if she went somewhere else and called and told us that she had found Dr. Jones. He appeared to be murdered at his home, and that was out on Linwood Drive. So uh, I'm gonna move. By the way, you're a little cord right here. Hang on a second. Okay. This little thing right here keeps on bumping against that. Okay. So just say, yeah. Start with uh, she had um, she had called called the police. Yeah, Yeah. Doctor Jones and murder. So just start say that sentence all over the Uh, makeup. She uh, went and uh, called the police, and of course we. At that time, we had a lieutenant and two sergeant detectives. So all three of us went to uh, the crime scene, and uh, uh, Chief Dennis Hyde uh, showed up out there. And Dr. Jones was in the living living room floor, and he he was dead. had been shot, uh, I believe, in the head. And uh, we did a search of the house what are you looking for we're looking uh, to see if maybe if the shooter is still in the house 
Because at that time, we don't know if there's still some. So you're like guns out yes. walking around? Yes. That's got to be adrenaline. Uh, pretty much. Uh, so you're, we go room to room, uh, clearing those the rooms to to make sure there's not a shooter still in the house. And they had a uh, large basement, so we make our way downstairs, and we're checking the rooms down there, and that's when we discover Miss Jones. Ah. And she has also uh, been shot, and she's uh, face down on a bed that they had down there. I guess it was like an extra bedroom. And she had also been shot. So uh, that's where the investigation started. And of course, we notified the state police uh, they, we had two or three state police investigators that showed up to help us with the investigation. You just want to make sure nothing is left, no stones left unturned. Right. Yeah, we searched uh, outside in the yard. You're looking for what at this point? Looking now? for anything. Uh, at that it, point, what was it like? Uh, it's not DNA at that point? or yeah. it, Well, it was like footprints, tire okay. prints, anything that would help us Try to fingerprints, anything, anything. And, and did you find anything? No, uh, we didn't find anything. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of evidence uh, in the house, and there wasn't any outside. Uh, was that pretty common back then to show up at a case like that and not really come up with much evidence? That's pretty because common. the technology wasn't as great back then. Well, we had the, some technology, not near what it is today. But there just wasn't a whole lot there that we knew. It appeared that there was a safe downstairs. It looked like some things were missing out of the safe, possibly, that somebody had kind of went through the safe. Uh, but other than that... Uh, there, was, there was not forced entry? No, like, no, no, he no. Let no he, he let, let him, him in. in. He had some yeah. flowers. Yeah, he had some flyers, and... Uh, he he went up with the intentions of I'm delivering flyers, Doctor Jones. And Doctor Jones said, "My wife's not here right now." <laughs> and and uh, of course, this is from Leroy's statement that he eventually gave the police. The guy who actually he, murdered him. Right? Yeah, the guy Leroy. Bullitt. And he knew none of the backstory about the hitman. No, that's what's no, so it's no. it's it's somewhat humorous. I mean, yeah. the whole thing's sad, sure, mm-hmm. but it's humorous when you look back at it on years later that. He had no idea about the hitman, and no. he's telling you guys just as it happened. He's like, yeah. "I get there," and he's like, "Come on in. My wife's not here, but she'll be back." Shortly, like, uh, "Okay, <laughs> well, this he, is easy." He produced uh, uh, a handgun, and that's when Doctor Jones said, "Hey, my wife's not here." According to to Leroy, <laughs> come on in though. Yeah, and and that, that'll uh, work right there. But just give us a second. She's out running errands. I believe. Uh, he was wanting. He demanded money from Doctor Jones uh, ah, because exactly. he was actually there uh, for money and yeah. jewelry. He's going to rob him. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I believe he said that Doctor Jones's response yes. was, "I've already I paid, paid you. you." Oh yeah. And and, uh, and which Leroy said he was really confused. It's <laughs> <Yeah>, <laughs> like I'm he like, testifies oh, with what's us. going yeah. on here. So. Uh, Dr. Jones thinks that he's there to, to kill his wife. And actually, then he, he shoots Dr. Jones uh, in the head. And uh, at some point in time, we don't know how much time, but probably shortly thereafter, Miss Jones arrived. And uh, I guess he took her downstairs and there was a safe that was downstairs, and it was open. Uh, so it, maybe he made her open the safe. And then killed her. And, and then killed her, yes. Um, how long was it before the bodies were found? Uh, we believe that he killed uh, the day before in the okay. afternoon, probably, I don't know, four thirty, five o'clock in the afternoon maybe. And is that house, where was that house? Because uh, it's not standing anymore, right? No, it's it's gone. Was it tore down because there was a murder in it? I I really don't know. I know that it was torn down. It I think it is now a vacant lot out by I think it's Arkansas Workforce that's out on forty nine. Okay. Lazari's and oh 
Yeah, right so there. it's next to kind it, of a, a vacant lot there. It's right yeah. off the highway then. Yeah, it's right there used on to be a big house out there. Yes. Yeah, a very nice home. How did y'all eventually get the leads? Like, was it would that have been a cold case to this day? If, was it Mr. Higgins, the jewelry? Was that the guy who, or the juror that found the, the guys that came in? Yes. Trip? Okay. Yes. Would that have still been a cold case if those guys would not have come back to Paragold to sell yes. that jewelry? Well, and here's a question. Why did they even come back to Paragold to sell the jewelry? That's a pretty stupid thing. Well, they were from Corning, Arkansas, and they did not know that the jewelry was connected to a homicide. What are the chances? And just to add, you know, we uh, the jewelry was traced back to Melbourne uh, or Cleburne County, and it wound up going out into Arizona. Out, I believe Tucson, Arizona, and had changed hands a couple of times in and Arizona, and yes, it made it back to Paragould, Arkansas, and the two guys that actually had uh, it was a ring that was custom made for Miss Jones. Wow, uh, they were from Corning, and they had come over and was going down the street to jewelry stores getting an appraisal on it. Had no idea that it was connected to a homicide. So they're probably completely thrown off when you guys are there to to arrest them. Well, What's going on? The way that happened, Mr. Higgins, Bruce Higgins, who actually made the ring, and he's sitting here looking at it, and he thought, oh, my God, this is the ring I made for Miss Jones. Uh, he gets on the phone. They go out and walking down Pruitt Street on the sidewalk. He gets on the phone. We get down there, and I believe he told them to come back maybe later that afternoon for the appraisal. Yes. Anyway, he he stalls them for a few minutes. So we uh, get downtown on Pruitt Street. Just right next door to us. Yeah. Right? Yeah, just right down the street. In fact, we – we actually, I think, arrested them. Uh, right here in this spot. Right, Pretty oh. close to this spot. <laughs> uh, we had two detectives, a state police investigator, who had got uh, in position at, in front of them and was hiding uh, behind, like, where you walk into these businesses. Mm-hmm. There's, And uh, I was in my car setting about a block or so away and uh our guys uh come out with their guns drawn and make them get on the sidewalk have them face down they're like what is happening they've not committed the crime right uh no yeah so they don't have have no idea they have no idea as soon as you take them in for question you're like all right guys you can head back to corning y'all have a good day no actually uh we we uh arrested them for a possession of stolen property, which is theft by receiving. So they had, okay. We had to take them, and I pulled up on Pruitt Street in my unmarked police car, which was a Crown Vic. They bring them out to the car, put them in the back seat of my car, and I drive them up to City Hall. And And uh, did you at that point, like, we got you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Book them, Dano. And then we start to interview these guys. And they're saying, hey, you know, we got this from so-and-so. And they they were dealing in arrowheads, said they. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's so random. That's, like, that's one of my favorite parts of the story. Uh, small arrowheads over there. Uh, and uh, they would make their own arrowheads. Yeah, counterfeit arrowheads. The counterfeit oh, man, arrowheads. Man. And they, they had some that I've seen. And they looked pretty legit. Yeah. And so they were uh, trading these as legitimate <laughs> arrowheads. And anyway, uh, started backtracking the ring, uh, wound up out, I think, in Tucson, Arizona. And actually, I believe that's where Leroy was okay. arrested, was in Arizona. Oh, wow. I and thought it was Eureka Springs. He, uh, I don't know why. Virginia, which he had killed two people in Virginia. Just because he's trying to get money? Stafford County. uh, He killed two people and wounded two, or wounded one, and had tried to kidnap uh, one woman. 
uh, she was not shot, but actually had put her into the trunk of a car. Oh, my gosh. That's and, a bad dude. Yeah. And uh, she managed to get out. I don't know how, but she got out of the car and ran to her house. Wow. Which was right there in the same area. And, uh, of course, notified authorities. And so they could actually identify the uh, the man that was shot lived. His wife was murdered, and their housekeeper was murdered. He was shot and survived. So uh, I think they actually had warrants issued for him, and uh, they extradited him back. Uh, to Virginia from Arizona. Here. Huh? Brought him here. Brought him uh, to Virginia. Out of Virginia. And then from uh, there was a a deal struck with the prosecutor. All the prosecutors, Virginia and uh, Arkansas, he would give a statement if he didn't face the death penalty. Mm. And so uh, uh they made a deal with them, talked to the the victims or the relatives of all the victims to make sure they were mm-hmm. okay with that. And the victims, uh, the relatives were all in agreement with that. So he gave statements to the two Virginia homicides, two in uh, Craighead County and the two here in uh, Paragool. Did he have to come here to give that statement? Uh, no, he gave one statement, I think, I don't know if it was in, I think it was in Virginia. Okay. And he gave uh, one statement that covered all the murders. Okay. And I believe he was a suspect in several other homicides in several other states. Jeez. But I don't know if they were ever, you know, ever able to make a case because he didn't. A serial killer. Yeah, he was a serial killer. Wow. And from what I understand, uh, again, go back and listen to the episode with Judge Fillers. He talks about the way he even got found the Jones house was he saw Mrs. Jones uh, at a hair salon yes. in Jonesboro and followed her back to see where yeah, she lived. That's correct. He saw a bunch of jewelry on her, like, that's a good. Yeah, and the, he followed her home, seen uh, where she lived, and I think the next day or a couple of days later came up here to uh, you know, rob her. And, of course, you know, he would uh, kill her and wound up killing Dr. Jones and her Mm. and uh, got some jewelry and uh, money. And uh, then he was on the run for, it was probably, I don't know, a couple of years maybe. Wow. Was that the first homicide you worked? Oh, uh, no, it wasn't the first homicide I'd worked. When was the uh, the the Jackson Neely? That was a, a case I was going to ask you about. It, it was, uh, I it, I believe it was later uh, when uh, that occurred. What what happened in that case? Oh, Jackson Neely. Uh, there was another situation where there were two uh, men in Dunklin County. And their father was living with a girl named Terry Bell. And uh, he wound up shot, I believe, in the leg. But anyway, he hit an artery, and he bled to death. And his two sons uh, were convinced that Terry Bell had killed their father. And even though I believe all the... uh, evidence pointed to a self-inflicted uh, gunshot they didn't want to hear that so they were trying to find someone to kill terry bell and uh they wound up uh finding uh, a guy named jackson neely she was living here in paragool with uh, i don't know if she was living with him at the time or not but they had lived together and uh, so uh, Jackson and uh, a guy named Gary Goldsmith and Terry, uh, the uh, Randall and Leonard Stewart was the two sons of this man who had been shot. They 
uh, talked to Neely to see if he would kill her. And they were paying him uh, to do this. I don't know exactly how much money. And he said, yeah, yeah you know, he, he would do that. So uh, they were all uh, – Terry Bell and Jackson Neely and Gary Goldsmith, a friend of Neely, were all together drinking, and they were over in Dunklin County on some gravel roads, uh, drinking and doing whatever. And Terry Bell has to relieve herself. So they're on a gravel road, and she gets out of the car, goes back to squat down behind this car, and Jackson opens a glove box, according to the statements that, that I took, and he gets it, and, and he says, I'm going to kill that bitch right now, according to Gary mm-hmm. Goldsmith. And <clears throat> so Gary Goldsmith stays in the, in the vehicle. Jackson gets out, walks behind the car. Goldsmith sees or hears a gunshot, and then – he kicks the body off into like a little, there was a swamp area beside the road, this gravel road. So he kicks her down into this uh, wet, swampy area, and they leave. So Dunklin County is working this homicide. We don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one day, the Three Rivers Task Force shows up at the Paragool CID. And there's five or six investigators on this task force. And uh, they've, they're working on it, and they've developed information about, uh, you know, this the conspiracy or what they believe was a conspiracy with uh, uh, the Stewart boys, uh, Leonard and Randall Stewart. Uh, so we, we're talking about, and I said, I think we need to bring them in and question them. And they said, they just took a polygraph a couple of days ago and passed it. And I said, I think we still need to talk to them. And so it was agreed that we'd bring them back in to interview them again. And we did. And both of them wound up giving statements that they confessed to trying to get Jackson Neely mm-hmm. to kill terry bell which that was another conspiracy so they were both arrested for conspiracy uh wound up going to prison for a while so we started trying to find jackson neely and it was uh myself and an investigator named steve hinesley with the missouri highway patrol and we were working this case we were going Dunklin County and Butler County, uh, anywhere we could go trying to get information about his whereabouts because that was where he he would be going. Mm-hmm. Never could find him. Uh, and uh, eventually uh, we got uh, lucky, I guess, Gary Goldsmith came to the Paragool Police Department at about 3 o'clock one morning, and I get a call at home. They said, hey, Gary Goldsmith just walked in. He wants to confess to a murder. I said, I'll be right there because we we had talked to Gary Goldsmith. What a bizarre thing. (laughs) Uh, Anybody here I can confess a murder to? (laughs) So, well, it gets better. Uh, I get up there, and – Goldsmith is put me in jail. I killed that bitch. And I'm like, okay. Something's so, not right here. So any, <laughs> anyway, I, I called Steve Hinesley. He lives in Poplar Bluff. And, of course, it's like 3.30 in the morning. I said, Gary Goldsmith just walked in. He wants to confess to killing Terry Bell. He said, what? And I said, he's wanting to confess to killing Terry Bell. And he said, I'm on my way. And I think it took him like 45 minutes to get from Poplar Bluff to Paragool. 
Where was where was uh, Gary at at that time? Is he just like sitting in your little confession room? Yeah, yeah. He was a cigarette, sitting, he was a cup sitting, of coffee. He was sitting in in my office, and I took okay. a tape statement from him. Okay, and he confessed to killing her. Uh, and he he had the whole story. Hey, we were out driving around. Everything was right. Hmm. And then he he made the statement that I shot her right between the eyes. Said she got out and was peeing. And I walked back and shot her right between the eyes. Well, Terry Bell wasn't shot right between the eyes. She was oh. shot in the back of the head. Come on, Gary. And, and uh, I said, are you sure, Gary? I mean, could you be mistaken? No, I shot that bitch right between the eyes. He's confident. And I said, and, you know, I couldn't get him to come off of that. <laughs> and I thought... Something about this just is not right. Now I talked. Of course, Hinesley had got there, the other investigator, and so we went out and left Gary in in the room by himself. And I said, "This is not right." I yeah. said, "He doesn't have, you know, she wasn't shot in the back of the yeah. head or between the eyes." And I said, "I'm going to call the prosecutor," which was Judge Phil Ayers, but uh, he was yeah. prosecuting okay. at that time. And by this time, it's like probably 6 a.m. So I called uh, Randy, and I, I told him what was going on. And he said, you don't believe him? I said, no, I don't believe him. The The wound's not right. Yeah, yeah. And I said, what do you think we need to do? And he said, well, if you don't believe him, let him go. I said, what? <laughs> I said, but he's just confessed to murder. And he said, you don't believe him, and he don't have the the shot right, let him go. And I said, well, I've never done that before. <laughs> I'd love to see that <laughs> conversation. So, so, so anyway, I uh, go back into the uh, office where Gary's sitting, and I walk in, and he's still in there. Put my ass in jail. I yeah, killed he got that his bitch. hands out. You're in the table. I killed that bitch. Put yeah. me in jail. So I walked back in. I said, Gary, we're going to let you go. And he turned as white as a sheet of paper. <laughs> and he said, uh, he looked at me, and he said, but you can't do that. And I said, wow. I said, why not? And he said, Jackson will kill me if you let me go. Oh, and, man. And I said, what are you talking about? And come to find out, Jackson and Gary Goldsmith were living in the same house. And Gary said, I woke up and Jackson had a shotgun oh, geez. pointed at my head and said he was going to blow my head off because he was thinking that Gary had snitched him off to the police. Wow. Because Jackson knew we were looking for him. So he decided that Gary Goldsmith is the one who gave us information. So Gary said, look, please don't kill me. I'll go to the police department and I'll confess wow. to killing Terry and they'll leave you alone. Wow. And Gary Goldsmith at the time uh, had AIDS. And he knew that he was going to be dying soon anyway. So Jackson said, okay. So they get in a car. Jackson drives him to the police department. Oh, wow. At Paragould? At Paragould. Wow. Let's him out. And that's when Goldsmith walks in and wants to confess to the murder. Wow. He told you all that when you're like, I want to let you go? Yes. So Jeez. I took I took another, what a another tape statement from him where... He actually told the entire story about what had happened that he hadn't shot her, that Jackson had actually shot her. Wow. And uh, went to trial. So he had just missed that one detail. Yes. He, and there, he had said, here's exactly how it happened. Now, let and, me tell you again, Gary. I shot her in the back of the head. You know, he's done all that. And he remembered everything. Well, no. what it, part of it, all that. What had happened was Jackson had told Gary when he got back in the car, right, I shot that bitch right between the eyes. Oh, that's right. They were together. He didn't want to say, I shot her in the back of the head. He wanted Gary to think, oh, wow. I shot her right between the eyes. So she wow. was looking at him when he pulled the trigger. 
But so that, he told it exactly in the way Jackson had told him. Yeah, and yeah. that's why he wouldn't change his story because he was repeating what Jackson had told him. So then where do you go from there? Well, we wind up going to trial. Uh, but, I mean, how did you get? How did you find Jackson? He just told uh, you here's where he's at? We found him. Uh, I think he was at a house trailer out in the county, and we got information that he was out there, and we wound up. I think we had a search warrant. Where did Gary go after that? Did y'all keep Gary, him safe somewhere? Like, uh, just be no, like, hey, best yeah. of luck. No, we, uh, you know, Gary was uh, on his own. I guess he went back and said, hey, I told him I did it. And they let me go. <laughs> so anyway, uh, went to trial. And, uh, I think I wound up spending two or three days on the witness stand uh, because part of the deal was in order for us to play uh, Gary's statement, we had to play both of them where he was confessing the the murder and the one where he actually told us the truth. So the defense was really tough. Hmm. Uh, They, they, they raked me over the coals pretty hot and heavy about that. Oh, wow. But anyway, we got a conviction. I believe he's doing life without, I think. Okay. So, so uh, what? Those are some crazy stories. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Those are wild. And so, I, um, I'm, I'm curious. You moved, you said you did that for 18 years? Yes. Are those the craziest stories uh, that you. Because, I mean, I cannot imagine anything more wild than that. Yeah, those, those are like are both book-worthy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're neat. That Dr. Jones one, it's got to be a screenplay. Um, you know, I worked uh, a lot of uh, child abuse cases. Uh, I had uh, one uh, where a guy named Alvin Hyman uh, was abusing some kids. He had a... This was his living girlfriend's uh, children, and they were living in a trailer over by Labor Park. And uh, she had uh, brought the little girl up to the emergency room one night, and uh, she had a submersion bowl uh, burn on her foot where it had been submerged in hot water and uh so i get up there and i'm i'm uh talking to the little girl and i'm i'm talking to the mother and she's uh i learned that he had put her foot into a pan of boiling water had a pan of water uh, brought it to a bowl on the stove put it in the floor and put her foot in down in this pan and her foot was just, I mean, it's blistered. I mean, blisters all over it. It was, uh, it was bad. And I thought, oh, I mean, it make you sick to your stomach to see it. Absolutely. So I go out, I'm talking to mama, and I'm pretty hot. Uh, yeah, sure. I go out, and I said, first of all, I thought she had done it. And I said, did you do that to, to her? And he, No, I didn't do it. And I said, who did it? And she said, Alvin. I said, who's Alvin? Well, that's my boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And I said, where's Alvin? Well, he's still at the house. Mm-mm. I said, your house? And she lived in a house trailer. And uh, she said, yeah, she, he he's staying there with the baby while I, I brought uh, my daughter up here. And I thought, you left him with a baby? And she said, yeah. And I said, oh, my God. So I got her to sign a consent to search form where we could search her trailer. And we went over, uh, put her in the car with me, and uh, got Jeff Tyner, who was another detective, and uh, went to the house trailer, and we go in and search it. Well, we find a baby, I don't know, five, six-month-old, in a baby crib, asleep in one of the bedrooms we searched the entire trailer he's not there 
Wow. Come back out to the car, and I said, he is left. He's not in that trailer. And her response was, did you look under the, uh, in the kitchen cabinets under the sink? What? I said, do, I said, what? That's what I said, what? And she said, yeah, he hides there when human services comes because oh, he's my. not supposed to be in the house. And that's where he hides. It's <laughs> crazy. So we go back in. And of course, Jeff is still standing at the, the door of the trailer. And I said, she thinks he's under the in the kitchen cabinets under the sink. And he said, okay, let's go look. So we throw those doors open, and he's all crunched up oh. under there, and he had a paper sack he was holding in front of him. So anyway, we drug him out Jeez. and handcuffed him, and uh, I think we wound up charging him with second-degree uh, second battery, and we charged uh, the mother with permitting child abuse. Mm. So, uh, And uh, Alvin wind, wound up getting convicted and was in the cross county jail waiting to go to the penitentiary and he escaped from the cross county jail and was i don't know he was probably loose for five or six months and i get a call from a detective in green bay wisconsin Mm. and he said uh he asked me he said are you looking for alvin hyman i said yes i'm looking for him he said i think we have him up here He's working on a, a construction site, and he's going by text. I said, text? They said, yeah. And Alvin was kind of a small bill guy. Uh, and I thought, oh, my. And I said, yes, we want him. And he said, okay, we're going to go get him, and we'll let you know. And you guys can extradite him back. So they went and got text. And uh, arrested him, and we extradited him back and sent him to the penitentiary. I had to make you feel good. Oh, God, yes, it made me feel great. You know, you see all this stuff, J.D., over the years. I'm wondering, how did you deal with it? And how do how do police, how do investigators, how do they deal with the stuff that you that you see? Because, you know, it's hard to, to see these things. It's hard to even sometimes hear these stories. But yeah. you, you see someone who's shot. Most of us will never see that, right? You've right. seen some, a, de- a dead body, uh, someone who's been murdered, people who've been abused, uh, abusers, right? Right. How, did you ever find a way to cope with that? Uh, the way I dealt with that uh, was I, I looked at it like I had a job to do. And I had to do my job to get, you know, uh, get some kind of uh, relief or something for these victims of mm-hmm. these crimes. Mm-hmm. So I always looked at it was something that I had to do to help the victims of crime. Uh, and, yeah, some of it's pretty tough. Uh, uh, you can't help but get get emotional right and uh, a lot of times you just carry that around with you yeah, yeah. like i just uh, imagine like some nights had to be harder to sleep than others uh i woke up in the middle of the night when i was in cid knowing i was going to be questioning a suspect the next day and i would wake up in the middle of the night thinking about oh yeah i need to ask him this question mm-hmm. and I, it's and you know you wake up in the middle of the night and you're thinking about what kind of questions you're going to ask this this person? So uh, it just never stops. Mm. But I've worked a bunch of cases. Uh, I mean, uh, some of them are just you know. I had a. I was telling you earlier before we went on air about a guy who was, you know, basically beat to death, and uh, that was just over. He had made a, a remark to. A, a lady that this other man was in in a bar and they went outside and he just beat him to death out there and we got this guy arrested had him up in the office i took a statement from him he gave me a statement about what had happened and that he had beat this man up and then he says uh after the interview he says how is that guy anyway and I said, he's dead, wow. and you're under arrest for murder. 
And he said, oh, my God, I didn't mean to kill him. I said, well, you did. Mm. So, uh, you know, that's just that's yeah. just one of the things. Uh, you know, I have I have forgotten probably more than I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some of these cases just kind of stick out in your mind mm-hmm. about uh, what happened. And uh, but, but anyway, it, it was a job. I did it for a long time. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it, and uh, up until I I become chief of police, and uh, then I was doing a different type of job, being the administrator of the police department, overseeing the entire department. Yes. So, uh, how has the police department? How's uh, working in law enforcement changed? From the time, because you you got out when? Uh, I got out in two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. Has it changed quite a bit? It's changed a whole lot from when I first got into uh, the police department in nineteen eighty two. What are the biggest changes? Uh, computers. Okay. Uh, Just all when, the IT parts of it. Uh, when I first went in, everything was we did everything by hand. You'd write reports by hand. Uh, your accident reports were all done by hand. Now all of that's on computer. Uh, so, and the radio equipment is so much better now than, than what it was then. You know, like I told you earlier, I couldn't talk to the, the mm-hmm. station from Center mm-hmm. Hill. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, they have radios where, you know, they can talk uh, long distances. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a lot better. They have computers in the police cars. That's that's a lot different. I think they have a lot better training now than than what they did when I first started. Have the cases changed? Uh, is it all basically the same exact I, same stuff? I think it's yeah, it's basically the same stuff. It's just different people, but you're always going to have people that do uh, uh, burglaries and thefts and murders and abuse kids is a lot of that uh, generational uh yeah some of it is because i know of some of the folks that i arrested uh back when in in my early days uh you know i arrested some of these guys when they were in their teens and now they have kids and we're arresting their kids mm-hmm. and, and they're doing the same things mm-hmm. that i arrested their Mm-hmm. their daddies for mm-hmm. so uh i don't know it's kind of a vicious cycle yeah it is they grow up in that environment and and that's just the way they are yes yeah so, you're exactly right it is a, a vicious cycle i'm i'm curious before we move into some kind of rapid fire questions which we like to ask our guests what what is something you would like the listeners to know about the police uh, and just, you know, cause you've been on, uh, you've, you've been very involved in, and a lot of us aren't like the only interactions right. we have with the police are either when we get pulled over or you see them working a wreck or whatever right. it may be. Yeah. What's something you would like the typical just citizen know about the police work or the police force? Well, the police, uh, you know, 99% of these folks I'm talking about nationwide are, are good people trying to make a difference. They're out there doing a job that is, don't have a lot of thanks that go with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a thankless job. But a lot of the officers are trying to make a difference in their community. Uh, and, you know, the police get a lot of bad publicity, uh, you know, and there are bad police officers. I'm not going to sit here and say there's not. Because uh, it seems like that's what the, the news will tell you. Mm-hmm. And that's all the people see are these cops doing bad things. And for, you know, everything that's that's bad out there, you know, there'll be a thousand that, that, that are doing the right thing, doing good things, helping families, helping kids, uh, protecting uh, their communities. So... I don't know that people really realize that the cops are there to, as as it says on the cars, protect and serve. Mm -hmm. That's what they're really there for. Mm -hmm. And that's what the biggest majority 
are there to do. They're there to help their communities be safe and be better. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Well, I'm very thankful for the work and the sacrifices you've made to help make our community better, to help keep us safe. And um, that takes, in my mind, a very special person to do that kind of work, and I'm glad that you were willing to step up and serve in that way. Uh, I'd love to, as we do each episode, end with some rapid-fire questions. And I know you probably catch every single episode, uh, and you've heard these before, (laughs) but you can act surprised whenever I ask you the questions. Uh, How do you like being on this end of it, by the way? Do you think I would be a good investigator? Uh, Just say yes. You you possibly could be. Okay. You've got a good sense of humor, and it takes a lot of that. Okay. To to, to be, because you have to be able to laugh. Yeah. Especially when it's not funny. Yeah. Uh, I think you do well. Well, that is very important. You know, I've talked with uh, like funeral home directors, and sometimes even that way in pastoral ministry, where it's like, you know, doctors are that way. It's like you kind of go crazy. Right. If you can't laugh at some of this stuff, because right. you, 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 it's just, yeah, you're around it all the time. We talked about that with Rhonda Thomas, I think, whenever she was on here about the yeah, exact same thing. Yeah. So, all right, here we go. Rapid fire questions. You ready? Ready. What is either the last show or movie you watched or the last book you read? Whichever. Uh, you oh, my them. gosh. Uh, last. Uh, Hardest question you've uh, been asked in a long time? Yeah, I guess so. I didn't know that we were going to have a test. Yeah. Uh, Right now, I'm watching a, a TV series on uh, a streaming network network called V. 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 Yeah, it's uh, V. Yeah, yeah. You're not missing much, but okay. anyway, okay. Uh, big fan of The Walking Dead. That's back to back episodes. Somebody uh, last week said that. Avi Heron said that. I watched uh, season eleven, which is final season, uh, on I believe it's on Netflix. Anyway, watched season 11 in one weekend. Okay. And it was a long, I mean, it, it was long. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know how many episodes there were, but anyway. It's got a lot of followers. Yeah, it does. What is your favorite band? Band? Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm going to keep coming with these. So I, 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 it ain't I mean, going to get any easier. You're asking me Hard-hitting questions. Yeah. I don't know. Gosh. You I, like tell music? us the truth. Uh, I, I like, uh, uh, of course, I'm not big on, uh, you know, I, I do I see a lot of, a big I, do a lot, guy. I do a lot of country. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I do a lot of country, uh, the old country. Morgan Wallen. Uh, don't no, know he didn't know that. Yeah, did you hear no, that? No, no. Did you hear that, Haley Deck? Yeah, <laughs> I knew he didn't know Morgan Wallen. I, I don't know who Morgan, I didn't know who Morgan Wallen was either, but I really got in some trouble over uh, Willie that. Nelson. Yeah. Willie Nelson. Willie uh, Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, uh, Folks like it. Yeah, the, that's the good old stuff, timers. Man. That's good stuff. Uh, what is your favorite meal? Oh, uh, my favorite meal, and I don't eat this because I'm diabetic, but uh, it used to be chicken and dumplings. Look, I oh, should have said it. I almost said I. I'm kind of pegging you as a chicken and dumpling. Oh guy. my, yeah, my. I wish my I would have said it. Grandma nah. Jones no used one's to make uh, nah. homemade chicken and dumplings. I didn't know that was a recipe for. But I didn't know that was bad for people with diabetes. Oh yeah, anything that's made with flour or, or yeah. grain, yeah, it it jack your sugar. Up. Go gluten free, man. It's just uh, rice yeah, uh huh. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite the same. I know you're exactly right. Uh, what is on your nightstand right now? Uh, gun. It's coming. No, I do not oh, have a nightstand. I can't believe it. Uh, actually, I have a CPAP machine. Hey, all right. All right. On that. Yeah. Uh, CPAP. And uh, I've got to the point that I've been wearing this thing for so long that I can't go to sleep without it. Sure. Uh, it helps tremendously. Oh, God. Yes. Absolutely. I've been wearing one for, oh, probably 12, 13 years. Okay. And uh, I absolutely cannot sleep without it. Yeah. If you ever forget it, you could just, you know, have someone put their hand on your face and squeeze it really hard. <laughs> I don't know if it's the would... same thing. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> it kind of feels like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you great joy. Just an ordinary uh, moment in your uh, life that brings uh, you great joy. 
probably my granddaughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's uh, 10 now, mm-hmm. and uh, I might spoil her a little bit, but uh, love her to death. That's awesome. Last question. What is one thing in your life that you're deeply grateful for uh, right now? Well, I'm I'm grateful for a lot of things. I'm I'm grateful that the good Lord has let me stay around this long, and you know uh, I become a Christian long time ago. Mm. So I'm certainly uh, thankful for uh, Christ and what He has done. Mm. Uh, you know, without Him, uh, none of uh, maybe what I've done in the past or what I've done in the future would be possible. Mm. So uh, uh, Jesus has helped me a lot. Mm. That's excellent. It's a great place to end. I uh, would love to be able to spend more time with you in the future. Maybe like, I don't know, I could have my wife figure out how to make some gluten-free dumplings <laughs> and have you over the house and we'll hang out. We got a sky cop across from our house now. Oh, I'd, that's like, good. To, I'd like to put your face on that sky top. Yeah. Sky yeah. That would, yeah. That's Let them know yeah. the enforcer is here, baby. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that probably a lot of folks out there committing crime probably don't even know who I am. Yeah. That's probably right. <laughs> that's probably right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It really has been a lot of fun hanging out with you. Appreciate you sharing the stories. Well, I've enjoyed it. Hope it didn't bore you. Uh, <laughs> not, no, at sir. Uh, not at all it, no, sir. Uh, sometimes i get carried away and uh my my mouth gets to running and i don't know <laughs> really when to when to shut it down so anyway i've enjoyed it thanks so much for coming on and hey for those of you that are still listening thanks for tuning in every single week this is why we continue to do what we do um and so if you've not already done so check us out on different social media platforms we're on uh, primarily on instagram and facebook and so you can go follow us on on instagram facebook uh keep up with all of our posts we also have a website peregrinepodcast.com and if you've not done this please go to itunes give us a five star rating uh, that just helps people find us more quickly and learn about the incredible people living here in Paragold. So. Again, thanks for listening. Until next time.